All right, everyone, we're about to begin our program this evening. We're grateful that you decided to prioritize tonight and attend. Um, I'm Rabbi Nicole Guzik. I'm one of the rabbis here at Sinai Temple. And I know that we often say the phrase that human beings are made in the image of God. I know you've heard that phrase before, I'm sure, so many times from so many rabbis. But what I want to make you aware of is the context of that phrase. When we say something is made B'Tselem Elohim, made in the image of God, we often forget the verses of the Mishnah in Sanhedrin that are at the start of that text. This is what it says before you hear that human beings are made in the image of God. What the Mishnah says is that God made one human being to start with. That's it. One. Because it's God. God could have made dozens of human beings. God could have made a hundred human beings at once. But that's not what happened. The world was created with one. To teach us, and perhaps you know this piece, if we destroy one person's soul, it's as if what? We have destroyed the entire world. And conversely, and you've heard this, if you save one person's soul, it's as if you have saved the entire world. And so I believe that text alone is why we have a synagogue. I think that's why we have the Sinai Temple Mental Health Center, to restore and heal soul by soul, fulfilling the Jewish mission of saving a life and thus saving a world. And so I want to publicly thank Fred and Nadine Rosen for underwriting the Sinai Temple Mental Health Center, being our partners, our friends, two people who are deeply committed to the emotional, mental, and spiritual well-being of our community and of the Jewish world. We're grateful to the Sandra Mason Trust for underwriting tonight's program. And it's now my honor to introduce the director of our mental health center, Carolyn Hoffman. I'm gonna talk about you for one second. I'm gonna talk about you for a second. <laughs> Just a second. Carolyn is a licensed social worker who has now spent almost two years destigmatizing the conversation surrounding mental health. She has worked very hard to get to know our congregation, our schools, our staff, bringing these vital conversations to the forefront of our synagogue. I'm proud to know her, to work with her, to dream with her as we continue to build this center and this important work. The only Jewish mental health center that's based in a synagogue. So I hope that you will help me give a round of applause to Carolyn Hoffman. Thank you, Rabbi Guzik. Um, wow. um, it is my pleasure to welcome everyone here tonight for our annual signature event through the Sinai Temple Mental Health Center. Over the last two years, in partnership with Rabbi Guzik, uh, I have worked hard to make the center a valuable mental health resource for the entire Sinai Temple membership, our clergy, and our staff. In addition to providing individual consultation to individuals and families, each year the center offers engaging community programming on relevant mental health topics. Tonight, Rather than meeting virtually, as we have uh, several times, many times over the last two years, we are in person. 
I hope that you will take this very special opportunity, not only to learn from our speaker, Dr. Jonathan Goldfinger, who I will introduce in a few moments, uh, but also to connect with each other and to engage in conversation. Through the center's establishment and growth, we strive to combat the unfortunate stigma that still surrounds mental health and that too often keeps those of us in need from accessing vital support and treatment. Attention to our emotional well-being is not only essential to leading a rich, full, and meaningful life, but is also a fundamental Jewish value. When we pray for refuat nefesh, we recognize our desire for emotional and spiritual well-being. We are obligated as human beings and as Jews to address the importance of our mental health and to help each other when we struggle. Tonight, our speaker, Dr. Jonathan Goldfinger, will be giving two presentations. The first, uh, Raising Resilient Adults, Ensuring Our Children Thrive, followed a little bit later by uh, our keynote address on moving through trauma to well-being as a Jewish community. Now, I would like to introduce Dr. Goldfinger. Wait, I have to talk about him. <laughs> um, Dr. Jonathan Goldfinger is a renowned pediatrician who has led successful initiatives across the United States, transforming the way we provide physical and mental health care. His research and advocacy around intergenerational trauma and the integration of behavioral health services have resulted in game-changing policies and initiatives in suicide prevention, trauma-informed mental health care, child development, and parenting support. Dr. Goldfinger has advised global, federal, state, and local governments, including the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and the World Health Organization. As the recent CEO of Dede Hirsch Mental Health Services, home of the nation's first suicide prevention hotline, Dr. Goldfinger helped acquire one of the nation's premier crisis hotlines, where teens counsel peers, helping to address the growing youth mental health crisis. Dr. Goldfinger also co-chaired Los Angeles County's effort to improve the quality and coordination of behavioral health crisis services for families during the COVID-19 pandemic. Today, Dr. Goldfinger consults with and advises healthcare stakeholders on strategies to improve the quality, financing, and availability of creative, effective mental health care. From early childhood and educational settings to outpatient therapy and substance use and crisis residential programs and jail diversion facilities, Dr. Goldfinger builds bridges towards the seamless, equitable, and dignifying mental health system of tomorrow. Now I introduce Dr. Jonathan Goldfinger. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Can you hear me? Is this one on? Well, 
welcome. It's it's uh it's humbling and embarrassing to hear all that, Carolyn. It doesn't sound like I actually did it, um, but in my career, I've noticed that if you keep trugging along and and doing the best you can do for others, you're going to find over time you really can achieve something. And so with that, I want to thank Carolyn. Rabbi Guzik, where's Rabbi Guzik? Oh, Rabbi Guzik, thank you. And the rest of the clergy and leadership of Sinai Temple and Sinai Akiba Academy for really investing in the mental health of this community, in the mental health of our children, our future, which we'll talk about now. And I'm very grateful to be here for this opportunity to share with you some of my work and what we can do as parents and as a community to make sure that our generations continue to thrive. And it's a little daunting speaking about this to a community really shortly after what I understand to have been recent tragedies. So what we're going to talk about tonight may be difficult, and I ask for the permission of the rabbinate, clinical experts, but especially all of you, anyone who will watch this on video, I ask for your permission, your grace, and your forgiveness. If some of this is difficult to hear, but on the last eve of Mental Health Awareness Month, part of erasing the stigma, as Caroline alluded to, and making sure we can get the care and the treatment we need is really understanding what's the root of the problem and what are the real issues we need to address. And so forgive me in advance, and if anybody hears anything or experiences anything, that's a good thing that you're connecting with it emotionally, but of course, feel free no judgment to walk out, take a moment, as this can be and has been in the past difficult to hear. So we're going to start, I think, with, with a more upbeat thinking about our children, if you could, if you could say such a thing, but we know that they're, they're suffering. And the important idea here is that depression and anxiety in children and adolescents had been rising in the United States for years before the pandemic. So when you hear about the crisis today, this was brewing for some time. But the pandemic basically accelerated that. And while it was happening in adolescence, many people don't really think about it. It's important to recognize that infants and young children have mental health. They have a certain amount of mental awareness from the earliest ages, and we can diagnose them with mental health disorders. And so, whereas you have significant numbers of teens or tweens with mental health needs, there's significant numbers of even younger children. And the younger we can go to prevent the challenges, as we'll see, the better off they'll be over the course of their lifetimes. Excuse me, trying to So during the pandemic, what we realized is that kids, for so many of the traumas that we all experienced and they experienced, I'll move back for those who want to see. Can you see? That's okay. That's all right. We're all in the right place if we're here, right? What we, what we learned is that kids, all kids, experience significant amount of sadness and hopelessness, but you see a difference actually based on their gender identity. And while we know that it's likely that girls actually did experience these emotions more intensely, more frequently. It's also true 
that maybe we don't actually teach or model for our boys to experience those emotions or to share them. And so we often say in pediatrics that we should worry more about the people we don't see a problem with because often under the surface, they're at some of the greatest risk. And when it comes to suicide, girls try more, boys die more. And I believe in this community, both recent cases The risk of depression actually varies not just by gender and other identities, but also by age. And you can see it rise over the course of as we age and move through adolescence. And one of the things I think is so important as I look out over this diverse crowd and that we're increasingly recognizing is that the melting pot of American identity in some ways leaves certain kids who identify as multiple races and ethnicities, mixes, struggling worse than others. And so those kids are also at increased risk and we have to be mindful of that. And how do kids deal with it? Well, they deal with it like we do, right? They try to cope, but without the frontal lobe, they're not necessarily thinking about the fact that they're coping, they're just doing it. And what are they doing? Many of them are using substances. Alcohol is actually the number one cause of death and disability in minors, and it's because it leads to car accidents, right? It leads to homicide, violent behavior. It leads to suicide, self-harm. And what's interesting is when asked about their habits using substances, most youth don't actually acknowledge that the alcohol is a problem, the way they acknowledge that about cocaine, other stimulants, and opioids. And so this is very, very dangerous, and we can't talk about mental health without substance use. These are two sides of the same coin. They're both problems with our brain and how we're trying to deal with the challenges. Oh. Are we not sure. Where do the kids get access to alcohol? Well, I hate to say it, but when I was a kid, it was the shul mostly. We would actually learn this on Simchat Torah. This is one of the questions about Jewish ritual observances and places where we would, forgive me, here it's, here it's grape juice. I say when I, when I was a kid, things have changed, but, but we, we lionized substance abuse or alcoholism in, in, in many places where there were holidays where drinking was a big deal. And then we also have our smachot, our parties, right? Our festivals where alcohol, there's a bar, the, the longest line at a Jewish, right? Jewish uh, party is often the bar. So they, they're getting it at parties, they're getting it at, at communal services. Yeah, and, and now it, it applies to drugs, too. They're, getting, they're going on social media and getting pills from very easy, very easily.
So I, I would say that alcoholism or substance use disorders, these are diseases, right? Just like mental illness, schizophrenia, depression, anxiety, the things we'll talk about tonight. And when people are hurting, they will find a way to cope. Children like us, they know they need something. They don't know what it is. So what we find is they find it somewhere. Whether it's locked, they'll go to a friend's house, right? If they're not getting the mental health care they need, they find a way to deal with the pain, the emotional pain that they're essentially numbing with substances and drugs. Was there any other question? So we see it as early as sixth grade, eighth grade. Bar mitzvahs are a common time when kids will say that was one of their first experiences getting drunk. Both. Good question. They think they're just wanting to have fun, but the ones who it becomes a habit or they overdo it are generally coping. While they're having fun, they don't even realize it, but they feel good that they're numb. And it's not just the alcohol, as was mentioned. So at all ages, if there's an underlying mental health condition, there's a significantly increased risk of substance use. So these come together biologically, it makes sense, psychologically. And so whenever we think of substance use disorders and mental health disorders, we should think of, think of the other one and the concern or the risk about it. Oops. And the reason, yes. Sure. Okay, so the numbers are less important than the fact that in dark blue you have people with major depressive episodes, an indication of a mental health disorder. In the light blue, you have those that do not have major depressive episodes. And regardless of the drug, every single drug, if they have a mental health disorder, they're twice as likely to use any substance. That's what this chart is showing you, most significantly marijuana followed by psychotherapeutics. They're abusing their or their parents' uh, psychiatric medications, followed by cocaine, hallucinogens, inhalants, and heroin. And this is old data. Today, this looks a little bit different, as I'll show you now, which is the rise of fentanyl. So we created fentanyl in a lab out of morphine in healthcare to numb pain. It's actually very potent. But unfortunately, this taught the drug market that there was a market for this. And so now, a lot of the pills the kids can get online, they can get from friends, a lot of the pills contain fentanyl even when they don't know. And we sell, there are test strips where in high schools across LA, including Beverly Hills, the kids are testing in the bathroom the pills they're using to see if they're laced. And we need to teach them that the substances they think they're ingesting may not be the same substances because we have an exponential rise in overdose deaths in America, including in children. Oops. And part of the issue is even if, even if kids recognize that they needed the help and not the substance, at all ages, we don't have the data on children, but you can see as you get younger and younger, you're much more likely to need mental health care and not get it. And so in children, that's an extremely hard thing. If anyone has ever tried to find a child psychiatrist, right? 
for, for a child, they're, they're basically non-existent compared to the need. And so with that gap, the United States has a rapidly rising suicide rate. In 10 to 24-year-olds, we see suicidal thoughts as young as seven, eight, calling the suicide hotline, and it's rising. It continues to rise. But we're here to think about what we can do about it. I love the questions. We want to recognize that there is hope and that we can develop healthy, happy, resilient children. And here's how we're going to talk about it. So the good news is this isn't working. The good news is these girls are cute. Okay. We're not alone anymore, okay? It used to be that families would struggle in the darkness because of stigma, which we'll talk about, and that generally healthcare and public health and the government didn't really give a damn. Today, because of the pandemic and the effects on the mental health of basically all of our families, if not ourselves, we see tremendous awareness of the importance of this, even as high as President Biden mentioning the youth mental health crisis in the State of the Union address, now in the past two, and the United States Surgeon General creating one of those advisories. Most people think of the Surgeon General as a person who deals with smoking. We remember, oh, that's how we learned smoking was bad for you, right? Well, this is that of our generation coming out and talking about it. And the Surgeon General reflected a message which is really one of the most important things you could take home tonight which is that underneath it all, the stigma of mental illness stops us from recognizing that mental health is just health. There really is no difference. A mental illness is a disease like cancer, diabetes, heart disease. And if we take these seriously, we recognize they're real, they're common, and they're treatable, and that these people deserve compassion, and care, not the stigma and shame that historically humanity has laid upon them, that they can get better. And it has to be reflected in how we communicate about mental health. And the reason is because it is so common, as we're saying. Roughly a quarter to half of youth in the United States have a diagnosable mental illness. That means if you have more than two kids, if you're a younger parent, one of them is very likely to have a diagnosable mental or behavioral health disorder. And anxiety tends to be more common, but as they get older, anxiety is more common in younger children, depression as they get older. But these are very low diagnosis rates. We have 9% for anxiety, 6% for substance use disorder, 4% for depression. And that's really because we're underdiagnosing them. That's not how common it is. It's more likely a quarter to half of kids. But in the United States, from the time a child starts exhibiting symptoms till they actually get professional care, on average, it's about 11 years. Imagine if your child had asthma or allergies or needed a vaccine or anything and waited 11 years to get help. Imagine if that was you or your parents or your other loved ones. That's the state of mental health care in America. And it if untreated, it 
gets worse and actually leads to other conditions. So children with depression, three quarters of them are likely to also have anxiety. And part of that is because they weren't treated. So they're then getting additional things. And it also leads to things later in life. We'll talk about the cascade of behavioral health needs and trauma. But a classic example is that girls, as you saw that rise of depression, if it's untreated, many of them end up in violent relationships. So there's significant long life impacts of untreated mental health conditions. For those who want to understand or thinking about someone you know with depression, or especially if it's in a child, most important on this slide is that children manifest depression differently than us as adults in certain ways. And so younger children, you'll hear about body aches, physical symptoms, belly aches, agitated, restless a little bit, trouble separating from their parents. We probably see that all the time here in the school. And whoever thinks, what's going on with this kid? Are they depressed? But that's actually relatively common. Teenagers, unlike adults, you see a lot more irritability, anger, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, out of, out of character. But also like adults, you see a lack of interest in things, withdrawal from activities they generally enjoy, trouble concentrating running away from home, talking about dying or giving away things, writing goodbye letters. These are pretty obvious, but perhaps the most common symptom of mental illness, anybody know? Curious. Appetite loss, no, but that is very common. Insomnia, very good. The most common symptom of a mental health disorder that's untreated or unchecked is trouble sleeping. You can also see weight changes, appetite change changes. And now with regard to anxiety, which is also very common, I think one of the things Carolyn and I discussed is we need to make sure that we understand that emotions aren't necessarily a disorder. And if we don't actually learn to talk about them, they can become a disorder because we don't get the help perhaps before it gets worse or meets the level of a disorder. And so anxiety is not a disorder. Anxiety is a symptom. I feel anxious, right? That's not, there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, anxiety could help, right? If I have to prep for this speech and I'm anxious, that's a good thing. Get my butt in gear, right, honey? I get nervous, I get, I get going. My wife will tell you, right? So that's okay, that's good. That's adaptive and a normal human behavior, a normal human emotion. But what makes anxiety atypical or a disorder? That's when you start to have trouble functioning where you have the insomnia, where you have fears that seem entirely irrational, right? Where you're diving in on something, really trying to solve something or control something, or you start becoming afraid of being afraid, or you get panic attacks out of nowhere, and there's no underlying risk. I often joke with my kids that I'm afraid of sharks. When I go in the ocean, I start to panic, but that's not an anxiety disorder because they eat people, right? <laughs> so I think, I think maybe I do, I don't know, right? The fears are irrational. They can be recurring. And there's many types of anxiety disorders. There's multiple types of depressive or affective disorders. But these are the general categories. It's like saying diabetes or heart disease. You could have type 1, type 2, coronary artery, lots of different subparts of the disorder. But essentially, these are the symptoms to look for. And my research is about how to address this in children and youth. And today, talking about communities, and the way that we do that, right, like with any really entrenched, intractable problem, is to get to the source, get to the root of the problem. And it turns out that the connection between all of these diseases that we're speaking about 
are childhood adversity. Adverse childhood experiences, or ACEs, as you'll hear us call them. And about 20 years ago, a physician at Kaiser Permanente was running an obesity or weight loss clinic, and they were doing the equivalent of what you'd call intermittent fasting. And a woman came in, and her weight was always yo-yoing, and she, she had put it back on, and Dr. Felitti said, tell me, how are you? And she says, I'm good, but I'm upset. I, I gained all this weight back. And it always seems to happen when I get into a relationship. And Dr. Felitti said, well, what kind of relationship? said, well, I tend to date abusive men. And he said, tell me more. And she said, I don't think I'm eating more. And they checked, and that was true. And just from getting back toward that relationship that was a reminder of what she'd experienced in terms of abuse and neglect as a child, her weight went up, strictly from the inflammation. And so calories are not the only thing that contribute to your weight. And so this led to a study between Kaiser and the CDC, and they recognized in a middle, largely then middle-income white population served by Kaiser that there are 10 adversities that add up in a dose response. So each one alone can increase your risk for physical and mental health conditions, but combined they start to stack up. And we'll see how. You don't need to see this or read this, but this is the list of behavioral health disorders and challenge behaviors, all the things we spoke about, including trouble in school, absenteeism in school, risks of not graduating, high-risk sexual behavior. If you have three to four or more of these ACEs, your risk goes through the roof. But it's also true of physical health conditions. It's true of asthma, allergies, unexplained bodily symptoms like we spoke about, overweight, trouble with toileting, dental health. So ACEs are, we've now recognized the origins of much of the disease and disability that affect humans. And here's how. It turns out, like we all know, right, it's not, yes, question. No, sorry, those are the citations. I didn't have time to <laughs> thank you. That, that I appreciate the mathematicians in the room. So you'll check me on my math. Thank you. Yeah, You're, that was really good. Yeah, even I don't see that. Yes. Sure thing. So the question was, are these exponential odds, or did I leave in the citations to prove there's real research behind it, the latter? Good question. Thank you. I probably should take them out. Um, but the research is very robust. Now, 20 years later, we know that these are the origins of disease in humans, and they stem from our children, our childhood, and their experiences, and some mind-blowing things that we've learned. Before male, female, man, woman, other birthing person, before they make a baby, their drinking, which, as I've explained, is largely associated with their childhood, affects their unconceived child. So teenagers, those teenagers drinking, they're already impacting the health of their children through their sperm and their eggs and the damage. And the question is, is it the drinking? Is it their own trauma that led to the drinking? The answer is it's probably both. But even preconception, we see it. And there's a dose response where we see heart disease in babies associated with parents drinking. 
So that's the biological, the genetic effect where this trauma is getting under our skin and it's actually changing how our DNA is read and transcribed in our organs, our brain and every other organ system. But it's also transmitted in terms of behavior, right? You would think, okay, how do we transmit trauma generation? It's based on our parenting. And that's true too. And this is research showing fMRI, a study of the amygdala of women who've experienced tremendous trauma. So what you see on the left side is if a mother, CME is the chronic maternal exposure of trauma, lots of ACEs. If a mother had a high ACE score, then her response to her baby's emotions, positive or negative, is basically non-existent. And on the left is a mother with no experience of trauma. But what's amazing is humans have adapted so that other adults don't notice. Look at her response to adults. It's virtually identical. The amygdala is how we relate personally and how we create emotional bonds and connection. So trauma is affecting the brain and affecting how we relate to our children. And that's one of the reasons why ACEs are so powerful, because that maternal attachment to the baby and paternal as well, these are things that create healthy psychological children, healthy psychology in children, and help their brains grow and develop. And that's in terms of what we would call emotional neglect, even if it's not intentional. It's not a crime. But we also know that abuse has almost never been reduced. It's one of those interesting factoids about being a pediatrician. We constantly report it. There's all sorts of efforts to reduce it. It's almost never gotten better. And the reason is that parents actually, in order to avoid abusing a child, they need to think of alternative options. But most important, they have to manage themselves in the moment. They have to have the ability to say, okay, something's not right here, to think it through and to talk it through rather than react. But what happens is the damage to their brain from ACEs damage the self-control centers in your brain. So they react. The lizard part of their brain reacts and they, they behave in that more aggressive way. And many studies have shown intensive interventions really not making a huge dent in preventing child abuse. So what can we do? What can we do as parents, as individuals who want better for our children, want resilient children? Well, the good news is that positive parenting, you may have heard of that, especially I know here, the school and the synagogue promote this. Positive parenting really can help. Yes. So chemical imbalances in their brain, in their hormones, it's a little bit, it's a little bit hard to decouple nurture and nature, that whole idea that they're separate. We no longer believe that. The study I showed you showing the amygdala, the fMRI is picking up on neural signals, which are essentially chemical signals. The nerves in your brain are using chemicals to communicate. That's what the fMRI is showing. And so the function of the brain is damaged, but that's impacting the woman's ability to look at her baby and have a reciprocal relationship in terms of her emotion and the baby's emotions. So there's really, we can no longer, we know now that you can't detach nurture and nature. We are one in the same. We are humans. We're biological organisms. 
we're relatable organisms, and that's why mental health and health are essentially the same thing. Yes. Yes. So toxic stress is actually what it sounds like. Yes. Sorry, do you want, you have a second question? Yes. <laughs> we could have planted you there. Yeah, so, so one of the amazing things about being created in the image of God is that even the God in our Bible does not seem perfect, right? We describe God as merciful but also vengeful. That doesn't sound perfect to me. So when we describe ourselves, we know there's no such thing as a perfect human being, and therefore there's no such thing as a perfect parent, and there's no such thing as... A, the, the perfect parent is the parent that acknowledges that we have challenges and the families that can acknowledge it. But ACEs are highly prevalent. About two-thirds to 70% of families will have, the parents have at least one ACE, and something like 25-30%, depending on where you are, will have four or more. So it's, it's ubiquitous. Oh, sorry, the, the childhood traumas that we're talking about it's about two-thirds of individuals in the general population, which includes parents, have at least one. So, exactly, exactly. So the first question was, what is this notion of toxic stress? And I'm glad you brought that up. I didn't get into it. I talk a little bit about it later. But essentially, toxic stress is the mechanism by which ACEs damage our brains and organs. When you have adversity and it's very intense or very frequent or both, and you experience that, the body's hormones for stress, the normal stress response gets dysregulated and it gets kind of out of control. And that actually dam that's the damage to the brain that led to the mother not responding or the kids needing to drink or the mental health disorder. So toxic stress is the damage. Stress can be toxic. It can also be tolerable. It can even be helpful. But at a certain level, it's toxic. It's literally what it means. That's exactly what we're about to dive into. I'll get right there. Uh, yes, it does. So the question is, is there no longer a predisposition to having mental health disorders? And the answer is, again, it is both. It is, if there, there are genetic predispositions to mental health disorders, just like there are for cancer and diabetes, and there are, if you will, the nurture or the ACEs and the parenting and the trauma that compound. So not everybody that has ACEs, right? has some of these challenges, and here's why. We're going to talk about that. Other questions? I appreciate this back and forth. This is great. Better than just lecturing. Thank you. So positivity matters, right? Giving people hope and love. And what you see here, colleagues of mine 
said aces is too it's always too negative john let's let's figure out the positive and it turns out there are actually positive childhood experiences you can inoculate your children to trauma and when you do that you actually create what we call resilience where the toxicity doesn't damage it actually strengthens your brain and organ so that's what we call resilience and this is how you build resilient kids you create environments where they're able to talk about the feelings where they feel safe doing that right where they interestingly have two adults in their life who are not their parents who show a genuine interest this is why it's the teachers and the clergy and the health professionals are so important to your kids resilience and, and lifelong health where they feel supported where they feel like they belong in high school and apropos where they enjoy participating in community traditions, right? Essentially what we do in a synagogue and in a community, community like Sinai. And when children have these, what's amazing is, unfortunately, it takes a little more positivity than it does to damage through negativity. But if they have six or seven of these, three quarters of those kids won't have depression or other mental illnesses. We can cut them out so their biology is actually being modified in real time by their nurture their genes are being modified we see trauma and positivity in your dna yes good question so hope is the personal subjective the sorry the question was used to diving in. The question was, is hope synonymous, hope and love, or is this synonymous with coping? And hope is a subjective, as a personal experience. Coping is really the behavior. So thinking about hope or doing things to remain hopeful is a form of coping. But hope is a, is a personal subjective thought or emotion. And so, as we said, even though increased trauma damages the brain and bodies in developing children and teens, it actually doesn't matter how much of it you have if you have enough love, if you have enough social connection. That's what's amazing. Equally, we see that part of, possibly the mechanism here is that the positivity, the ability to engage and speak about feelings and feel protected and have this connection and sense of belonging, this social connection in children may actually be the way it may work is that it leads to lifelong social and emotional supports create an environment where kids with these are much more likely to create healthy social relationships and connections they can rely on but interestingly even if they don't even if they grow up and they had this positive environment but we measure their quantity and quality of social connection we'll talk more about that later they still show the reductions in their mental health. So there's the biological impact. Doesn't matter. They don't need the buffers later. Pretty amazing. And so we're talking about relationships, but there are other buffers of toxic stress. We call these interventions or preventive approaches to trauma to affect the, the, the prevent the effects of trauma. We call them buffers of toxic stress, how you decrease the toxicity of that stress. And they include the relationships we're talking about, mental health care. These are all research proven. Sleep, healthy sleep, 
regular exercise, nutrition, mindfulness, meditation, time outdoors. In a shul, we should recognize what's the most common form of mindfulness and meditation? Prayer. And so that's another reason why Jews have lasted through the ages. We meditate some three times a day if they're lucky. And so how do we as parents engage our children? I was asked to give some practical tools. And the interesting thing is how you engage your children around trauma and mental illness and substances is exactly how you engage everybody else with hope, with love, with non-judgmental regard. We listen, we talk about it, we create a safe space, we set aside time, we put aside our phones, we don't have the distraction, and we ask people to open up. But we also have to open up. Interestingly, research has shown that if parents and families acknowledge mental illness in another family member, the kid or the other person is more likely to recover. So this is where stigma, which we'll talk about, is so important because I know my grandparents, may they rest in peace, would probably be happy. This is not a real example, but they'd probably be happy if I said to them, to my kids, you know, grandma had this issue. They're dead. I don't know if they care, but if they're listening, okay? And can we do that? Can we describe this to our children about things that run in our family, even if we're not calling it a disease, but we're saying how you feel? Oh, grandma experienced this a lot. Yes. No, the, the core of it is that someone they feel bonded to has it, so they are no longer alone. They feel connected. They are now identifying as a human being and not a disease process or emotions they can't control. Now they know they can lead a happy, fulfilled life like you and grandma. Great question. The question was, does it matter who the child is identifying or who we're identifying for the child and the family has had mental health challenges. We have to be compassionate with our children, but also with ourselves. These are very difficult conversations to have. These are difficult things to think about and talk about. I'm grateful for my wife who tolerates me talking about this stuff constantly and is always really gracious about it. Not easy conversations to have. And we have to get them help. The answer is mental health care was on that list of buffering the toxicity of adversity. Mental health care over and over again proven to have the impact, so we have to know how and where to get them help. And this community is blessed to have a mental health center led by Carolyn where you can get your members and, and children's support. And so how do we start this conversation real quick? I know we're probably running up against time. But we're going to do questions after. We're okay? No worries. I can get to my New York self and run through quick. Um, you know, the first thing about having the conversation and how you can help your child or your teenager, but this works with adults too, have that appropriate place and time. Learn the words that you should say to bring the conversation up. Easy. Can we talk? How are you really? Sounds simple, but in the moment we get a little nervous, like, I don't know if they're going to want to talk to me about this, right? Especially like my teenager, oh, they just run to their room and cast shade, you know, like, okay. But if you learn the terminology and what you can say to get them to open up, start the conversation, but be direct. 
often we kind of beat around the bush. Like, I noticed, are you okay, you know? No, I noticed this behavior in you, and I'm concerned. Show concern, and then leave it at that. Acknowledge their feelings. Don't try to fix them. Often we try to dismiss it away. Like, oh, this will pass. You're just upset about this breakup or that test or, you know, the pandemic. I don't know, right? Don't dismiss it because what do they learn? That their emotions are not valid. Just listen with empathy, no judgment. You can be reassuring, but the reassurance is that you're there for them. Not necessarily that it's going to get better immediately because it doesn't. It's like any other disease. It takes time. It takes work. It takes care and love and hope, as we said. And so I was asked, given the melting pot of this community, to talk a little bit about culture and the cultural influences of the different communities that make up Los Angeles Jewish communities. And interestingly, when I looked into it, different professionals and individuals who talk about these issues typically are describing the same thing. They're just actually using different terminology, but here goes. And forgive me if this doesn't sound anything like your family and you're upset. In Ashkenazi communities, people are concerned about how will my description of my mental health, right? People kind of think, oh, my childhood, right? What will that say about my parents? But the interesting thing is the reason we do that is because so many of us were sworn to secrecy about what happened in the home. This is actually a very common thing, especially in, in generations of Holocaust survivors, right? We don't talk about Bruno. <laughs> That's essentially what they learned. So, okay, this is a Jewish thing, right? I respect my parents. They say we don't talk about what happened in our family. And in ultra-Orthodox communities, they're concerned about an arranged marriage, but this has actually permeated the broader population. So regardless of the sect, we see what's called affiliate stigma, which basically means I feel stigmatized, I feel looked down upon, neglected, isolated, because someone else in my family has mental health. By affiliation, somebody with a problem, the community is shunning me. And generally, when humans perceive something, it's real. So that's also important. It can be perceived. It can be real. Most of the time, there is some of that stigma. Third-generation Holocaust survivor, I'm a third-generation Holocaust survivor, can show a lot of symptoms still, interestingly. And this is amazing biology. PTSD, right? We think of PTSD as people who've lived through wars, highly traumatic experiences. There are still increased risk of PTSD in generations later of Holocaust survivors. And they describe parenting things like lacking emotional connection and resources and coercion, where a parent would behave in a way, almost where the roles are reversed, that they had to take care of their parent. And some people kind of learn this and describe where a parent would say, oh, suck it up when talking about your emotion. Like, you have it better than me. I think we all kind of think that about the next generation. Right? You, uh, you have it so good. But... In the Holocaust generations, the emotions, you weren't allowed to feel a certain way, and that's been perpetuated. And people describe parents, Holocaust surviving parents, saying, if you don't X, I'll kill myself. Has anybody ever heard that in a family? I know the, I see the mental health professionals nodding. This is a form of coercion, right? Trying to get what you want from your kids by, by threatening to, to die. I mean, that's pretty horrible, but this is, this is what they had experienced. 
in this, interestingly, in this way, anti-Semitism and the rise of anti-Semitism, and we'll talk about that a little later, triggers again the anxiety and the PTSD. And so some people actually experience a mental health disorder when they see anti-Semitism rising in society. But most people, many people actually just have this underlying sense of unease, insecurity, that we're not safe. That's the biology still talking. And a lot of people feel like proven treatments are goyish or started by non-Jews. Classic is 12-step programs for substance use, which really work. We're started in churches, therefore we can't go. They're not ours. Psychiatry also has this label or stigma. And lastly, when, when Ashkenazis go to therapy, many of them will describe that their religious or, or Judaism-based worldview is actually degraded by the professionals. I know none of us ever do that. But spirituality and religion, as, as Rabbi Guzik mentioned, these are intertwined. When we talk about the soul, right, we are talking about mental health. We're talking about our brain and how we experience the world and think. And if that's how you receive care, then you're not likely to go back. Now to Persian culture, and forgive me not being Persian, it's difficult for me to share this, but this comes from Persian colleagues who are professionals, PhDs and psychologists, and you'll notice very similar themes that mental illness would be viewed as a family flaw, and we need to project this perfect image, this idea of honor and respect and integrity and dignity of the family. You don't mess with that. Again, we don't talk about Bruno, right? That would mess with the image of perfection of our home, of our family. People fear ridicule, judgment, similar forms of stigma. Interestingly, some described that in certain Persian households, it wasn't common to hear, I love you. They never heard, I feel anxious or worried. We always have it covered. The parents would behave in a certain way. I don't, so they didn't feel okay saying I'm down lately. And if they wanted to try to get help, they were, oh no, that's just for crazy people. And this is what Persian professionals who treat Persian patients say they experience. And I found one Persian uh, mental health professional in Iran said, interestingly, that the culture is a social system so concerned with how we work and how we perform at work that when someone isn't performing because of mental illness, ostensibly, they're viewed as less than. So very interesting. The productivity for the society was a big, a big issue. And lastly, this is not just unique to Persian culture, but many cultures believe that people with mental illness were possessed, right? Talking, the devil is in them because you see them in the street talking. They're having psychosis. They are experiencing a voice, right? It's not, not God. It's their brain miswired. Um, but many cultures maintain that, that the devil or the, or the negative spirit is embedded in you if you have a mental health disorder. And so real quick, I know for time we're going to move through the do not pass go, the thing you must do, the thing that I think in some ways brought us here tonight is recognize the signs of suicide, the warning signs, and do something about it, regardless of how you, your family, or others feel about mental illness. If you hear someone talking about or making plans for suicide or hurting themselves, they need help immediately. 
Talking about it is one thing. If they actually have a plan, meaning a mechanism, they talk about how they'll die, the firearm, the pills, doesn't matter. That's the highest risk, that they'll actually do it. People who express hopelessness or display severe emotional pain or overwhelm and show additional signs, like withdrawing, withdrawing from situations. Remember I said the people you don't see, the kids you don't see, tend to be the problem. So the ones that are talking about how they're doing or acting out, then we know, okay, something's wrong. But the ones who are totally flat, those are some of the most significant risks. And often family members will say, we had no idea. We had no idea. They seemed so fine, right? But if they think about it, over time, that person withdrew. Changes in sleep, as we said, and in many people, agitation and hostility. So you can be the one to save a life. Remember, it's very similar to talking about mental health. You want to ask them directly, have you had thoughts of hurting yourself or suicide? Recognize there is no evidence that asking that question leads someone to die by suicide. Notice we say die by suicide, not commit suicide, because commit is a judgmental implication that they're doing something wrong. They're not going to get help, no matter what you feel about that religiously. People don't get help when we judge them. So we try to say die by suicide. People died by suicide. And as soon as you hear the answer, yes, that they've had these thoughts, stay with them. Keep them safe. Think about, are there guns nearby? Are there pills? Do they have access to a means? Can I get rid of that means? Can I ask them about it? Be there for them. Tell them, I'm here for you. Even if you don't know what to do, saying I'm here for you can save their life because they are no longer alone and isolated. Help them connect to resources. I was blessed, as Carolyn mentioned, to lead much of the rollout of 988. We now have a three-digit number, like calling an ambulance. You're just calling professionals and volunteers who are highly trained to save that life. You call 988, tell them, can we call 988 together? Three digits, easy to remember, like 911 for mental health. And follow up, again, the social connection. You're there for them now, and you will check in with them later. You let them know that. You keep checking in, and you will save their life. Last, and certainly not least, as parents and in the digital age, we have to consider the impacts of social media. And what you see on here is, again, the cavalry is coming. The federal government is looking very closely at the fact that tech companies are showing predatory behaviors, not just on us when we're on social media, but on our children by design. These apps are designed to addict your kids. And interestingly, this senator said to the head of Instagram, you show no remorse. It's like you don't even care because this is a huge business and our kids, they're the product. So the United States Surgeon General just recently, the other day, came out with this new advisory so we can all know about the risks and it's going on a media tour. And you see, basically, social media is ubiquitous. 95% of kids 13 to 17 are on it, up to 40% by age 12. And the average U.S. kid spends three and a half hours a day. And the reason this is so damaging as the Surgeon General says, is we don't have any evidence or we don't have great evidence that it's actually helpful in any way, but we have plenty of evidence it's damaging because children are exposed to harmful content, violence, sexual content, bullying, right? Harassment. 
and it affects their sleep. And so when you compare the pros and cons, if you're thinking about, is this at all good for my kids? When you ask kids, interestingly, they say this is a social connection. So there's something there. We do want to take that seriously. And many medical and mental health professionals use social media as ways to engage in very healthy dialogue with young people. But the risks are undeniable. Twice the likelihood of depression, anxiety, and other mental illness if they're there more than three hours a day. And the average kid, it's more than three and a half hours a day. So the average American kid is being damaged psychologically by their social media use and all sorts of other things like hate-based content, affecting their sleep, addiction, priming addiction behavior, which can spill over into other areas of addiction like substance use, a lot of issues with body, how they feel about their body, eating disorders, especially in teen girls, lots and lots of challenges you've probably heard about. So how do we protect our kids? Like any good battle, gotta have a plan, right? There have to be boundaries, there's a line. And we openly, with non-judgments, talk to our kids about it and say, this is unhealthy, right? Let's create a line in terms of screen time, in terms of content, let's agree on it. Let's get to that agreement Let's have tech-free zones, whether it's mealtime or other in-person events, very important because that in-person social connection is the antidote, remember, to all the trauma they're experiencing online. But certainly there should be no devices within an hour or so of bed and all throughout the night. That's a line because that sleep is actually one of the buffers of toxic stress, right? It's dealing with the trauma they've been living through in the last three years and online. Help them with their social skills and in-person. If we make a concerted effort to give them in-person interactions, nurturing relationships, then again, we're giving them the antidote to trauma. Empower them to be responsible, discuss the risks and benefits, but talk about respecting privacy. Ask directly again, who are they connecting with? What are their settings? What are they experiencing? Where are they spending their time? Teach them to report. You can report to schools. I don't know about schools, hopefully one day. You can report to law enforcement. You can call 911. You can report anything online. And there are many cases, sadly, of children, teens lost to suicide because kids in their class were bullying them online. It's no longer what the teachers can see. So very, very dangerous. And they have to know how to report it. Show the, mo the model the positive behaviors yourself, right? Be mindful of what you're posting and when you share information about your children. Model positivity online. Unfortunately, the algorithms of the social media platforms are designed to boost negativity. This is one of the reasons we have such political divisiveness in America. Work with other parents to create standards. That collective impact can go a long way where we all share norms and practices and it's not harder for one parent to restrict their kid's cell phone because we all agree. I hope the school, the shul will create some sort of shared agreement, including the parents in the process and understanding what should be acceptable. There is good tech for kids though, and I'll leave you with that hopeful notion. When we looked at 988 and we looked at how kids wanting, wanted to engage in mental health support in a crisis, it turns out the younger they are, the more likely they like text messaging. Wouldn't necessarily think that, though we do think of text as pretty anonymous. Got all that, not to promote 
social media, but WhatsApp talking about how anonymous it is, they've learned, right? They want to convince you. So if your kids need mental health care and they can't receive it, thankfully you have the center, but if they can't receive it, there's a lot of online platforms now, many of them very good, but most of them are selling the video call, the Zoom chat with the therapist. Not a lot of them are selling the texting. And the data is early, but it appears that you can get therapy, effective therapy via text messaging and chatting. Great question. So the question is, how do you know the person you're chatting or texting is reliable? And the answer is, you can't unless you use a reputable source. So as a professional in this space, 988, call, chat, text, no matter how you contact 988, you can text 988, we tell kids. Those are highly trained professionals and volunteers, and they can get police and ambulance there to save your life within minutes. Yes? Good question. So 988 was originally actually created at D.D. Hirsch, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, but under the Trump administration, it was expanded with the new three-digit number to include other behavioral health crises. The public generally does not have a great awareness of the difference between a mental health crisis and just, I don't feel well, so we'd rather people contact it for generally everything, and it will connect them to ongoing care and mental health care if they need it. But we'd prefer that they, if they're really not sure, is this a mental health emergency or crisis, that they reach out. Yes? You do now. Yes, so the <laughs> this was one of my most difficult challenges with both the Trump and the Biden administration was whether to promote 988. And you can imagine, we all think that that's the right thing to do, but it turns out the estimated demand because of all that increased depression and anxiety is so high that they felt that we would overwhelm the actual people on the other line. And so public health campaigns are about to roll out for 988. You'll start to see billboards. California is going to do it soon. You'll see television commercials. It took about 10 to 15 years for 911 to really take. And so hopefully we'll get there sooner for young people. And lastly, for tech, it's not just the social media. It's not just direct encounters. But friends of mine at Google are doing incredible things where now the AI is coming to help us support our children too. So if you Google suicide or how to die by suicide or any of these things, the algorithm now immediately connects you to 988. You can click and chat right there. And it creates prompts for how to have a conversation and talk to your family about it or how to talk to your kid or someone that is suicidal. If you're the person supporting, YouTube also has a bunch of crisis resources. A lot of work's gone into this from some pretty wonderful people. Remember, Children, they're not just small adults, but how we relate to them is how we relate to adults. The non-judgmental regard with compassion and creating the grace and the space to have a dialogue, to be there for them consistently, to show them that love, that support, that social relational health, that's really what's going to buffer them from the toxicity of stress and create resilient, happy, healthy future generation. Thank you.
Good question. So the question is, what's normal teenage behavior? If they want to shut the door and certainly they have hormones. Um, so the answer is, like anything else, a mental health disorder or a substance use disorder, the definition of a disorder, what makes it, if you will, abnormal or needing treatment is when there's dysfunction in their life and that can be in their relationship. So you notice they're not relating well to you, to the parent, to the siblings, to friends, right? They're withdrawing. They're not, they're skipping class, right? Kids' main job is school, right? So if there's a problem in school, and that's why if you're not sure, you ask the teachers, how are they doing? If they're just shutting the door and being angsty, and that's normal, right? Being, giving you a little, a little uh, pushback as a teenager, that's normal. And in fact, that's biologically healthy. Children need to establish that separate identity from you, right? Much as we want to keep them in the cocoon forever, they need to leave the nest and fly. So they need that independence, and we have to give them some of that space. But if we start to see what seems to us as them not doing their job or functioning, in a healthy way toward others. And interestingly, with regard to depression, which is probably the most common challenge today in teenagers, it's where you see that irritability and that anger. They can push back, they can, but if they tell you to fuck off, you should wonder about that. Forgive me. Yes, sir. Yes, I'll, we'll share it with the, with the Sinai Temple Mental Health Center and I'll share it with you. I think if you register, make sure you register with Carolyn, please. Yes. So the question is, do we see correlations between highly intelligent kids and chemical imbalances? And the answer is yes. Highly intelligent kids are actually more predisposed to certain mental health disorders, including autism, OCD, anxiety, right? We think about that type A student, they just have to be the best, but sometimes they're learning that, right? Because they're so smart and we're pushing them and like, oh, you, so it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. So yes, the smarter the kids are, they can have certain conditions. We don't usually measure brain chemicals in children. That wouldn't be a very pleasant procedure. So uh, we generally know that when we look in blood levels and other things, the smartest kids can experience a lot of anxiety and distress that we can see biologically. So those kids, like all kids, being able to have the age-appropriate, healthy, open and honest dialogue about how they're feeling and teaching them to use their words and describe their emotions and giving them those positive experiences with family, friends, non-adults, right? Community, finding them their posse, right? Their friends, the activities that they like and creating that structure, but also not giving them too much pressure. We tend to put additional pressure on people we seek and perform. And that's true about our kids. And so, you know, those kids experience more pressure to succeed, to skip grades, to go above and beyond. So being very mindful of not adding to the pressure and speaking to them about it if they, if they exhibit any signs of challenge. Sure.
That's, that is a, a phenomenal question. So the question is, how do you balance the ACEs that kids probably need or the, the challenges in order to become resilient? And it's interesting, a friend of mine who led a lot of this work, she likes to say not only are ACEs not a death sentence, right, or a horrible destiny, they're actually superpowers because you can't create resilience without ACEs or trauma. And ACEs are just adverse childhood experiences. They're the thing that happens. So what we're learning to do is ask people, not what are you doing and kids, but what happened to you? And if we change our mindset in that way and we actually don't let it kind of fester, there's no secrecy, right? We can talk about Bruno, it's okay. And we create that non-judgmental environment that's how the aces become resilient superpowers, right? How does Rocky keep getting back up? He gets knocked down, right? And he has Mickey, the guy in his corner. I guess we should talk about Creed nowadays, but same idea, right? So yes, we want to breed resilience, but we can't intentionally traumatize our children. I would say life throws enough curveballs at our kids there's plenty of trauma to go around. They hear about gun violence, right? There's plenty of scary things rising their cortisol levels. We just have to create that buffer of the toxicity of it, and they'll be fine. I'm not implying you'll want to traumatize your children, but you know what I mean. There's, there's plenty of negativity to create resilience in, in society. There always has been and, and will be. How old is your wall? Yeah. It, it's very frustrating. So the question is, are there resources to help us address and perhaps also cope with the fact that our children don't listen and are essentially so addicted to this screen and to this experience? It's essentially what social media and screens do is they give you a dopamine response. It's like a drug addict. You're getting a hit. And that's what the, that's what the social media companies have figured out. There's a great documentary. I forget what it's called. The social, what's it called? The social network. One of these there's a great documentary that talks about this where people from the companies, from Facebook and other platforms, they don't let their kids on it because they know it's designed to addict the kid. And in terms of resources, the American Academy of Pediatrics has a great parent-facing website called healthychildren.org. You can now Google the United States Surgeon General's social media advisory and you will find what I shared there where there's plenty of evidence-based information for parents teachers, other public servants, and others who would help. But there's a lot more resources, thankfully, out there today. Sure, I think, I think we may have to move on for time, but I'm happy to stay here if folks want to take a break. Are we taking a break? I'm okay, no, I'm good. I, my trauma makes me very resilient. I can truck on through. My wife will tell you, I'm like hyper-focused. Round two. Superpowers. Okay.
So I usually don't do two talks at the same time. So I was trying to find a way, not knowing if everybody would stay, and I appreciate those of you who did, uh, to kind of differentiate these topics because they're so inextricably linked, and you'll see why. Communities are made up of people. People were once children, right? And how we behave as adults toward one another, toward ourselves, obviously, relates to our childhood our childhood trauma, as well as the positive experiences and the relational health we developed young. And so we're asked to speak tonight at this point about a community and what we might do as a community to understand our collective trauma and to heal from it. And with that, this being Mental Health Awareness Month, I'm gonna really focus on the awareness part because knowledge is power. Underneath it all, if we understand why we're trying to overcome the barriers toward emotional health and well-being in our families, in our communities, in greater Los Angeles, we're going to do it. And so you'll see a lot of what I'll share now is about the data about collective trauma and what we're experiencing as as a broad community in the broadest possible sense and what we have experienced in the past. And so we just got finished talking about that trauma can look like this, right? This is one of the ACEs, intimate partner violence, the way the child may experience it. It can look like this, where this child seems downright giddy for being yelled at. They may seem okay or even happy. But underneath the surface, that disgust, right, that the mother is demonstrating and frustration, if intense enough, can be a problem. It can, do, 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 nope. Okay. It can look like this for certain members of the community. It can look like this. Does anybody recognize this? I see some generational gap here. So this is the Iranian revolution, right? Violence in the streets. Revolution, getting rid of the stable environment we once knew. And it can look like this in the next generation. Remember, we talked about how the impact on one generation can then be resurrected or re-traumatized in the next generation. And so the horrifying loss of Masamini is triggering that history in younger Iranians. For me and others in here, we discussed the Holocaust. This is mine. But what the Nazis did to our bodies, they weren't just all gassed. Many were experimented upon, including women. And so it can be resurrected like this, now feeling that our bodies are not our own anymore, or once again. And so no matter when trauma happens in history, no matter how significant it is to us overtly, or even if we don't realize it, we know that adverse experiences when we're young, as we've said earlier, for those that weren't here, are 
changing our DNA and how our body reads and transcribes our DNA in our brains and all of our organ systems in real time. And the trauma is embedded in our DNA. Now, remember I said, for those that were here, that the original study was in middle-income white people at Kaiser Permanente. So they didn't find discrimination as a trauma. But today, this is a very recent article from science.org, Today, we realize that discrimination is another form of trauma or an ace. And in some ways, all of us dis experience discrimination because we're different from someone else, right? Some of us more than others, though. And so we see that black people, independently of what stressful things are happening, in their lives, fighting with spouses or financial distress or anything else, when they experience discrimination, their cortisol, their stress hormones are double the next day. But interestingly, the smallest form of discrimination, which today we refer to as a microaggression, something so subtle, but it's still there, they may or may not perceive it cognitively or consciously, a microaggression increases their stress hormones immediately. The very same day, those same stress hormones that are toxic can be toxic. And so racism compounded by disproportional rates of ACEs, poverty, underinvestment, and deprivation and bias, even within healthcare, both mental health care and physical health care, these are compounding. And the reason this is so important for communities, aside from the fact that these types of traumas keep us from one another, they actually kill us. So ACEs, I showed you the diseases, but now I'm showing you that ACEs actually shorten our lifespans and increase the risk of nine of 10 leading causes of death in the United States. But you may notice that it doubles the odds, it triples the odds, but if you look at suicide, it's 37-fold increase risk. So certain outcomes of ACEs are more likely. ACEs cluster, so you can have certain ACEs that are more likely to be there commonly, maternal depression, uh, paternal or father, you know, substance use, drinking, and partner violence. And they also compound over time. And what happens is that when they're getting under your skin, it's a snowball effect, the damage to the DNA and the organs. And when it damages the brain, what you see is the increased odds of behavioral health conditions or mental health disorders, suicide, drug use. In the kids, the odds are somewhat higher, but by the time they're adults, if they don't get the care, which most Americans don't, their odds are significantly higher. So even those childhood effects, they're still compounding over time, like bad interest, right? The dose matters. The number of ACEs matter, but also the, the quality or the, or the intensity of the ACE matters. And we talked about four plus ACEs increasing your risk. How about people with six ACEs more likely to die 20 years earlier than the rest of the population? And you'd be surprised how many people have that many ACEs. It's actually a lot more than you realize because they cluster. There's also an important science emerging about the specific adversities, that certain adversities lead to certain challenges in behavior, in life. And so physical and emotional abuse leads to different things than sexual abuse. 
depression leads to different things in parents. And you see here even differences in gender. So biologically, we are predisposed to experience trauma and manifest it in different ways. And here's a really fascinating study I came up, I, I, I researched and found not ago that shows that the pathways to aggression or violence in partners, and this probably has to do with all relationships in humans, are different between men and women. So both men and women, if they experience psychological or physical abuse, one of the main pathways from that to aggression is substance use. And they don't have to be you know, drinking the night of the fight. You remember, using those substances affected the sperm and the egg for the next generation, so I think it can affect your brain for the fight the next day. Interestingly, though, males show a predisposition toward aggression toward partners if they were sexually abused through the pathway of PTSD. So that's how it happens. They actually are re-experiencing the trauma in the relationship in real time. They don't always recognize that. And so interestingly, this has gotten to the point where insurers are looking at this. Colleagues at a health plan in Oregon said, okay, so let's understand what happens in people's lives and what is a hard life really like? What are these pathways? And they looked at a broader population, not just specific things. And what they found is, right, the circle of life. Life is full of cycles between generations, between ourselves, and essentially, badness begets badness, right? Goodness begets goodness. So there are intergenerational cascades, and it's like a waterfall. It's not just the individual trauma. It's bringing more trauma with it. It's like a vacuum sucking in more trauma and more trauma and more trauma. And this is what we see in the streets of Los Angeles today. That This is essentially the homeless population that you see. This is what happened to them. It's not about what did they do. It's about what happened to them, and we didn't nip it in the bud, the cascade. So in order to prevent intergenerational cycles and transmission of trauma, we know that we have to prevent on multiple levels here, multiple layers. One is this cascade, where one thing just seems to lead to the next and it compounds. Two is where they veer off toward the condition, the little slides showing that even as the cascade is rising and the risk is rising, okay, but depending on their age, they're going to manifest some other behavioral health need, and we have to prevent them falling down that little slide too, because then that becomes compounding. That affects their relationships, their ability to heal from the trauma, and we have to prevent the intergenerational transmission. So my work is mostly in early childhood, in women's health and, and, and infants and toddlers, I think of, okay, right? There's an unintended pregnancy related to the high-risk sexual behavior that she had or he had, both of them had, right? Unprotected sex because of their ACEs. And it just keeps happening again and again. Then they have a daughter that they traumatize and this is another way that the intergenerational trauma is transmitted in the maternal child circle of life. Now, we all just live through an incredible trauma. So thinking about communal health and recovery and how we can thrive as a community without thinking about the pandemic and, and what we just experienced collectively together, not just in our history, 
would be a mistake. But interestingly, at all ages, throughout the pandemic, people experience increased symptoms of anxiety and depression. The younger and younger generations experienced it more. But it hasn't gone down. So the pandemic has ended, but how many people still feel like it hasn't or like something isn't right? Our mental health has not recovered because trauma does not recover right away. It gets under your skin. It's more insidious. It's a slow burn. And so we have not recovered. Before the pandemic, there were tens of millions of Americans with mental health disorders and substance use. Remember, I talked about the overlap. Now there are many, many more. The care, unfortunately, isn't there. Before the pandemic, I mentioned about two-thirds, depending on the population. So in California, two-thirds of people, individuals, had at least one ACE. 18% had four. Remember, I told you six will take 20 years off the life. That's maybe four to five percent of people, right? So one in 20 kids walking around in this school, this synagogue. That's all cultures. And ACEs rose. What happened when the children were safer at home? They were not safer at home. They're stressed, traumatized, re-traumatized. Parents were giving them more ACEs. Their parents' mental health conditions, their parents' behaviors, drinking went up, mental health conditions went up, everything went up. So this generation of children today is perhaps the most traumatized generation of recent memory. We have to really think about that and what that means for the future. Yes, ma'am. So the question is, haven't we always had trauma in large doses at different times in history, from wars to other pandemics? And the answer is yes, and haven't we always gotten out of it? And I would say the answer to that is no. We're not a healthy society. America is one of the least healthy societies and has the largest spending per individual of any civilized organization. We rank about 20th September 11th. I was there. My father, thank God, escaped one of the towers. So we do have recurring traumas, and humans survive, but we don't necessarily thrive. And we're talking about how can we get beyond it? How can we break the cycles where, like you said, we can create human beings, we can nurture human beings and nurture communities, really, that are a lot more resilient and thereby reduce heart disease, cancer, mental illness, depression, anxiety, suicide, overdose. But we are seeing increases in suicide, and I can't tell you, I don't have the God view you hear me, right? I don't have it, but is it possible that those increases in the young people's suicide are a manifestation of many generations of compounding trauma and we've reached their brain's limit and their DNA's limit? Yes. So I wouldn't say we're necessarily better off. We recovered in some way as humanity, but we didn't thrive. We have many diseases that are preventable if we think about it in this way. Yes. Yes, there are great testing for this, yep. Yes, yes. 
They are more at risk, but interestingly, they have a lot of habits, social habits, and positive experiences where they inoculate their kids. They're a lot more open and honest about things. So they're not beating around the bush as much about certain aspects of stigma, child, you know, childhood trauma. There is substance abuse, there is child abuse in Israel, but there are also factors. They're a very tight-knit community, if you will, right? There's a, there's a certain closeness, closeness among Israelis, even you know, with some of the challenges of today. So uh, they're a really interesting population to think about that, our brothers and sisters there. And, and yes, they experience chronic trauma, but maybe they also experience more buffers than we do. And they have Israeli salad, right? The Mediterranean diet. So nutrition, nutrition is a buffer. Maybe all those, you know, melafim fonim bamelach is really helping them. Yes. Yep, this is like, I didn't plant her. This is exactly what we're going to talk about. Yes, so our isolation and our lacking of the buffers is increasing. And that's one of the main questions about, is that the driver of some of this worsening? Yes, well, you know, we'll give them credit as Jews. They're smart and they're highly adaptive, right? It's a nimble society. So they realize mental health is health, maybe faster than we did here, and maybe they're they're adapting and they're growing resources in the community. Haven't been in a while. I'd like to. I'd like to hope so, for the highly traumatized population. Yes. This is a great question. So, so our younger generations, or even younger children, in some ways, having a different experience because they didn't live much or have as much positive experiences of family and connection before the pandemic. And the answer is yes and. These are very complicated things. Remember, you have the positive experiences and you have the negative experiences. Some of those kids were home with highly nurturing parents. Okay, so let's call a spade a spade. It's not all doom and gloom. Thanks for the reminder. Okay, so some of those kids, that was a great experience for them, having their parents at home. And so, right, their parents usually worked outside the house. Um, but Zoom school was not. So, okay, they lost the teacher connection and the social connection of peers, but they gained a much more hopefully present parent. But unfortunately, there were kids that also gained a much more stressed and mentally ill substance using parent. Yes, sir. Yes, yes, actually, it's there. there is some evidence that all of this independence or all of the technologies and traumas that are keeping us from others are making us less likely to want relationships. And so, yeah, this is a communal problem. It's also a demographic problem, right? Certain countries, there's just not enough babies born. So, not a, so the question is, do Jews uh, experience you know, more anxiety, more pressure, whether from being affluent or from additional trauma. And it's hard to generalize. Jews come from all sorts of different, today, different cultures and different geographies. But as we saw, both Persian, you know, communities traumatized by the Iranian revolution and you know, other things that happened in history and Ashkenaz cultures traumatized by most recently the Holocaust and everyone traumatized by anti-Semitism. Uh, yeah, I mean, that stereotype of the anxious Jew in Larry David may be true. 
It may be true. I don't know that we have evidence that Jews have a higher proportion of disease, but we do have evidence of the intergenerational transmission of ACEs, trauma, and behavioral health disorders in, in Jews, but I don't know that it's more frequent because every culture, every society has had trauma, has had war at some time, famine, right, pogroms. They've, you know, people have killed each other for a long time in history. Thank you. This is, this is great. I'm going to try to speed along. I don't want to keep you here all night, <laughs> um, or my wife. But we discussed earlier that essentially the mental health infrastructure was not there before the pandemic, somewhat explaining why we couldn't buffer the toxicity of being a young person tomorrow, today, whatever the reason was. But adults and kids don't really have access to care, and they still don't. And if they're more severe, one of the interesting things people don't know about with regard to mental health is that mental health professionals are just like physical health professionals. You have generalists and you have specialists, right? And you wouldn't want me as your pediatrician diagnosing, right, your kid's appendicitis and then going and taking it out. It's not my bag, right? Same thing for mental health care. So most mental health professionals have come into contact with suicide and substance use, but aren't necessarily trained to address it. And interestingly, many come into contact with trauma, and it's not part of the basic training to focus on trauma. We call it trauma-informed care because there are some uninformed professionals across healthcare. And so we can't just assume mental health professionals panacea, right? They'll deal with everything. They can be that basic support and professional guides and, and treat us, but they also need to know when to refer and get additional help and those gaps are not just qualitative, as we said, they're quantitative. And so we see the increase in youth suicide that was recognized throughout the pandemic, including by former head of the CDC. And I don't have to belabor this point, this having been a recent trauma for this community, but suicide doesn't just impact that individual or their family. An average of 135 individuals are impacted negatively or traumatized by the suicide. It's extremely costly. Insurers are finally looking at it and the return on investment for intervening and following up. And we discussed the impact of young people. But one of the most staggering statistics of the pandemic for me was that a quarter of young, young adults, late teens and young adults, were seriously considering ending their own lives. That was the highest risk population for suicide in the pandemic and likely continues to be. And we have plenty of evidence of the trauma and how it's impacting us. This is the evidence that trauma is smoldering and living under our skin and impacting our brains in ways that don't impact our behavior for months. You see here, the WHO characterized COVID as a pandemic. It took two or three months for suicide calls on the lifeline to jump up. Interestingly, George Floyd's murder, which we would think is highly stressful, but that righteous indignation, that human desire for justice, which is certainly a Jewish value, actually buffered the population. Suicide calls were down after George Floyd's murder. Anger can be protective, interestingly. But then they went back up when we closed schools. And you see, it takes a few months. And then the suicide rates go up. The election, highly stressful. The suicide calls went up. And the question about Jews, you know, Jews tend to be more affluent. So we looked. Where in Los Angeles are the most frequent calls to Dee Dee Hirsch, the home of 
988 in Southern California? Beverly Hills. Who are the most suicidal people in Los Angeles? The most affluent people, the Jewish people. I don't know what the proportion of Jews are in Beverly Hills, but I feel like it's a lot. This is where we're standing, right? This heat map. So we can't ignore it and you know bury our heads in the sand and say, that's not us, those are those poor people, those black kids, those people in the streets. No, this is all of us. And it's that tale of two cities at both ends of the spectrum some of the most affluent are also the most suffering, so don't be fooled by the rocks that they got. Yes, I needed, we needed some levity. My wife said, you got to lighten it up. Yes. Yes, so great question. So the question is, is it possible that the affluent people are more aware of it? Um, so the answer is yes, they are aware and they are more predisposed to suicide. Richer people. Uh, in the United States, the most frequent deaths by suicide are middle-income people, interestingly, but when you see the rises, it's the ends of the spectrum, the most rapid rise, more affluent and least affluent. Yes? So there's a lot of theories about it. We don't know entirely. One common theory is the stigma that suicide and mental illness, right, it, it festers in the dark, trauma festers in the dark. I can't tell you as a pediatrician how many times wealthier people were offended when I asked about child abuse. You could see it in their face. How dare you ask me? But what did that tell me? It was there. And we've been fortunate in California that ACEs screening, universal identification, is going to happen, my work and others, uh, of identifying ACEs in everyone. We started with people on Medicaid, but the law now says commercial plans will have to pay for it too because we can't miss those kids in Beverly Hills with a PPO. Yeah, so <laughs> great question. Why do people want to die by suicide? Why is, that the, why is that the answer? And so the most common response that people give is they want to end the pain. They describe emotional pain and suffering and overwhelm. And it's not just that life is not worth living anymore. It's that it's horrible and horrifying to them. And so that's the most common answer, but there's other biological reasons. I don't know that we have time to get into them, but the brain damage of the ACEs is damaging areas of the brain that protect us and tell us to self-preserve. So they are actually biologically also and genetically predisposed. There's lots of reasons. We know today that we are likely to learn to predict suicide and we haven't yet. AI is probably one of the best shots we have, but certainly communities learning and having this knowledge and awareness about the risk factors. Trauma is, childhood trauma is one of the most significant risk factors as is social isolation, which we'll talk about, but biologically they're predisposed as well. Yeah, so uh, we talked a little bit about what we can do as individuals. We'll talk about what we can do as a community but this is a disease. It's one of the most intractable mental illnesses. It is recurring, and there's a lot of data on what works. Very, very close care. Most people are not familiar with what we call crisis residential facilities. We hear stories of them languishing in the emergency room floor without a bed or in the inpatient 
ward, but there are actual places where teens and adults with suicidal thoughts can go and live and receive 24-7 care and support. We had them at D.D. Hirsch. They're sprinkled throughout L.A. County. There's not enough of them, but there is intensive mental health care, just like there's intensive physical health care. And like intensive physical health care, somebody's complaining of symptoms of a stroke or a heart attack, right? They're going to need the thing right away, then to get to the hospital, then don't pass go, then get them to the cath lab, then the rehab, the recovery, getting their... It's a lot. So there's a broad continuum of services equivalent uh, and very successful with regard to behavioral health crisis, suicide, overdose, and the precursors or predispositions to it. It's a much more complicated discussion than I think we have time for. But great question. Yes? <laughs> Are you asking me or the TSA? Uh, it, it really depends. In some states, I don't know what the federal law is, but in some states, the answer is yes. In some states, absolutely. Great point. The question is, if the TSA asks you if you've ever been in a psych hospital, isn't that a form of stigma? And yes, so there's such a thing as what we call structural stigma. We talked about interpersonal, how people treat us, affiliate or self-stigma, how I feel treated. And then there's structural stigma, which is largely what my work is about, unraveling systematically designed systems that keep people with mental health disorders and other needs from feeling human and being a part of society and accessing care. Yes? Yes, one of the protective factors for suicide is hope. Yes. Ah, man, I wish you weren't my wife asking me this. Um, so, are people with mental health disorders dangerous is one of the underlying questions. And the research is equivocal. It turns out that it depends which disorder and that the overwhelming majority, 99 point whatever percent of people, even with perhaps some of the more concerning schizophrenia being one of the most concerning people, fear people in the streets, um, those people are not likely to attack or be aggressive toward an individual, unprovoked, right? Uh, and so is there a public health benefit that outweighs their Dignity and basic human rights? No, because statistically speaking, it's extremely rare and it's much more likely that we're actually going to heal them if we get them care and not treat them as less human. So that is, that is the truth of the matter. I think the, uh, what you raise is a dangerous and pervasive form of stigma where people believe that people with mental illness are possessed and are going to kill us or hurt us. And having people with a mental health condition in our families in some ways helps because now we realize that's not true. And we are perpetuating as human beings this lie, the media is doing it, right? Even in the LA Times article that talked about the Metro, which has become a place for overdose in Los Angeles, they conflate the fact that there's also increased crime and rape and they act like it's because of the mental health. Not just that all sorts of problems are festering down there. And so most of the data does not show that people with mental illness are violent, aggressive, and this is a form of stigma where we're creating a narrative that we're perpetuating about them because it makes us feel better about marginalizing them and creating systems that deny them 
human rights. <laughs> I love you. Yes, self-fulfilling prophecy in some ways, right? We keep them aside, we keep them from care, we treat them as less than, and they, they don't get better. Overdose, also a form in some ways we think of as suicide. We call these deaths of despair collectively. We talked about earlier that overdoses are on the, on the rise. While substance use is not on the rise in kids, thankfully they've gotten that message. Um, it is on the rise across the entire population, adults. Liquor stores in the pandemic were empty, not like the toilet paper. Okay, we actually used the liquor. And so substance use is on the rise overall in the United States population and continues to rise. And that's all substances as you see and thereby overdoses, uh, but largely driven by the fentanyl and the opioid usage. And the flip side of the coin, the question of, of violence that came up, right? Hate crimes are also on the rise. So violence to self and violence to others are actually the same thing. They're very similar parts of the brain that are not controlling or tampening down the urge to be aggressive, whether it's to yourself or someone else. And so all forms of hate crime are on the rise. This is in California over the last few years. You can see that jump up started before the pandemic, uh, but certainly accelerated. That little dip down there was when we were kind of so worried about ourselves, we stopped being nasty to other people. But they now climbing through the roof, and certainly you see in, in the black population that blue line more than anyone else that blacks experience this. But then you have gay men, Hispanic or Latino populations, and Jewish. So we're fourth on the list of rising hate crime. So it is real. And that anger and that violence that we see in society, it's largely perpetuated by the political divisiveness we experience today. And perhaps a lot of the social media and just the technologies keeping us from relating. And we'll talk about a little bit about that. Brighter days are ahead. What can we do about it? This is a great Jew who actually became the next head of the CDC under President Biden. Unfortunately, this restructuring this stigma, stigmatizing system was too great, and she handed in her resignation the other day. But we, had a, we should be proud. We had a Jew there who was an infectious disease doc brought in to address this, and one of her priorities was the mental health of America for the first time, the head of the CDC making this a big focus. And so because we're talking about community, the Surgeon General of the United States, who thankfully is still in his position, Dr. Murthy, came out with another advisory recently. This is a very large evidence-based, I encourage anybody who wants resources and data to take a look at it, showing us the epidemic of social disconnectedness. Now, isolation is how I feel, or loneliness is how I feel. Social connection is do I actually have the relationships there for me? The social emotional supports we talked about are important as buffers of childhood trauma. And so, the Surgeon General came out with this recently, pointed out that loneliness harms not only the individual, but society, that animosity we're experiencing, it's cyclical. We can't connect with other people and they're hating on us or we're in our own little echo chambers where we're right and they're wrong. And so then we don't connect with other people and it just keeps happening. And so the United States is experiencing this epidemic and the mortality effect, there are more deaths associated with being disconnected socially than there are 
smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Okay, it's greater than the deaths associated with obesity or not exercising. And those consequences are what we're feeling in addition to the political drivers of it. We're feeling that negativity. We've lost that connection. Someone said to me, I think Carolyn said this, that there's a concern the kids in schools are not relating to one another. And I said, I don't know that they lost their social skills at home with their families. It's that they're experiencing another child a little more aggressive, a little more off than they're used to, and they're recoiling. There's a back and forth, right? Relationships takes two to, two to tango. So they're experiencing dissonant interactions between them, and that's manifesting, and certainly bullying is on the rise. Some of the kids are getting more aggressive. Quick question, because I think a lot of us are getting tired. Yes, technology has ruined society. I'm all there. I'm with you. Agreed, agreed. So what you see here, that's a great point. The, the point is that technology has essentially disconnected us. And that's what you're seeing here in the data that the Surgeon General put together in these nice little, nice little graphs. Yep, yep, people are not connecting. They have Amazon Prime, right? They're not meeting them in the, in the checkout. So this is what you're seeing, that social isolation of people we love, people we care about is down, but also perfect strangers. We are not connecting as much in terms of our day-to-day -day time. We just don't have those connections as much anymore. It's true of all sorts of connections, and it's been going down for years. So yes, the technology is accelerating the decline of our social connectedness, but it's been going down even before technology and email were as ubiquitous. So since it's been measured, uh, we've been struggling to connect as humans. And one of the things that people are describing today after the pandemic is this general malaise or feeling that something isn't right. We haven't gotten back to it, but I don't feel like myself. I was asked, what is that? And the answer is it's multiple things. Most likely, we can't exactly pinpoint without asking you questions. You can show up in my non-practicing office to discuss, but essentially, it's probably a combination of depression, which is, like we said, on the rise, Dissociation, which is a normal human response to trauma. I'm going to detach and act like I'm not here. My body is, but my mind, my spirit is over there like a floating ghost. And that's, you see, people are blankly staring at your Zoom screen or in your meetings. They're dissociated. And that's a common human response to trauma, extreme trauma. The isolation and disconnection we talked about, burnout, hopelessness from a lot of things, but the constant back and forth and vehemence in the media we see and certainly long COVID. We can't underplay uh, the fact that there's evidence that the virus and the inflammation of the virus affected our brains even when we didn't know it, even when we didn't have any symptoms and the vaccine didn't necessarily protect us. So there may have been some life, you know, long-term damage to the human brain associated with it. And we gotta be positive and we wanna kind of move on a positive note. I hope this will work. But the good news is we have the strengths. You know, what can we do? We have the strengths in our culture, in Jewish culture, to actually right all of these problems. And here's a great organization that laid it out for you. I hope it works. Let me see if it'll work. Keep trying. Nope. 
can get to the slides, but essentially this organization went through all of the Jewish values, what we call Midot, and went to try to explain what are the Jewish values that will buffer us from all of this toxic stress and did a great job. You can see the video. It's called the Blue Dove Foundation, if you want to Google it, and really describes the Jewish values and how they pertain to mental illness. So we have the strengths. We have them in our community, in this community, and other Jewish communities to create healthy and productive generations, to break these cycles. And I would suggest that what we need to build are what we would call trauma, resilience, and connection-informed communities. Used to be it was only one of those. Now we need all of them. Can't just focus on the negativity. We got to focus on the positivity and how we build connections and resilience. And we can do it. We have what it takes to do it. And here's a model that really works. In pretty much every public health issue, we have what we call the social ecological model where you can start with the individual, but you recognize that everything you do to make the change happen happens in a context. The individual is in the context of interpersonal relationships, is in the context of an institution, a shul, a school, right? Policies of those schools and how they treat people, is in a community, is in a city or a neighborhood, and is subject to the law of the land. And so if we intervene on all of these points, we can actually break the cycles of trauma and prevent the impacts of toxic stress. For those that weren't here, there's great evidence that these seven things that we can do as individuals, what we can do for individuals, will help. You have a mental health center here, not to belabor the point, but speak to Carolyn. Get the help for yourselves, for your loved ones, for your kids. Please focus on relationships, other well-known impacts of health and decreasing inflammation. Mindfulness meditation, which is likely for Jews most commonly prayer, and time outdoors. I love that. Just being outdoors is actually healing your cells and your DNA. And we know this prevention of the cascade works. So there is evidence that mothers who have very good or excellent health, their children are less likely to experience ACEs, even if they had ACEs. So if we take care of not just the individual, but that interpersonal connection, that next generation and their relationship, we can make a huge impact. And this is kind of one of the ways my work in clinical care manifests. We have to focus on the positive relationships again, creating the opportunities for people to feel safe, to feel heard, to feel like someone is there for them especially the younger they are, but this even works as you age. It just doesn't work as well, um, but you can buffer toxic stress throughout life and you have to focus and you have to practically, proactively, sorry, create healthy relationships and that can buffer the toxicity of stress. And so what are, what are the lessons and approaches we know for trauma-informed communities? What do trauma-informed communities do in addition to thinking about all the interrelated contexts and what we can do for individuals all the way up through the policy arena? This is what they do, and this has been shown to work. So this is what a trauma-informed, resilience-informed, and connection-informed community would do. And we're doing the first one here realizing how widespread trauma is, understanding that it can be healed, we can heal, there are paths to recovery and the prevention of the mental and physical illnesses that come from it, recognizing the signs we've talked today, tonight about depression, anxiety signs, trauma signs, 
atypical behaviors. And when it's somebody asks, when is it my normal teenager, right? I want somebody to say, when is it my normal grandma? When is it my normal me? Not easy. And if you don't know, consult your local mental health professional. But we can do that. If we recognize the signs and we, we have the strength to say mental health is health, let me get a professional's advice like I would ask about that lump, right? Like I would ask about that headache. We can respond. And we as a community can fully integrate that knowledge about trauma into our policies, our procedures, and practices. And I want to just share one thing that actually happened here, so, so you'll forgive me, but not too far down the hallway, we had a meeting. I don't remember how long ago that was. And this was a first meeting where the community was coming back into this building. And I remember, you remember we had this discussion? And I remember being in this meeting, sitting next to my wife and watching some vehemence, just the, the questions and the attacks and some people were expressing healthy ways their emotions and how they felt about the institutional policy and all these things. But some people were just angry. It was just spewing venom at everyone in front of them. I felt bad for Rabbi Guzik and Rabbi Sherman and, and Rabbi Wolpe and others in front of them. And I said to my wife, I said to Rabbi Guzik afterwards, this is re-traumatization. These people don't know that they are being triggered by whatever the subject is here. And I don't know that those who created that meeting for this community realized how potentially traumatizing that discussion could be. And so a trauma and resilience and connection-informed community has to understand the history of the Persian community, has to understand the history of the Ashkenazi community and every other form of Jewish community if we're going to heal and not do it again to people today. Yes, yes, and that's why I think the social ecological model I showed you, it starts with the individual. We have to create systems that care for each and every one of us and our children, and then move up and say, but what about our relationships? And so the question, what can a community do? A community can create settings for healthy relationships can resist trauma, can understand this, and then think when we're going to have a policy or we're going to have a convening or a meeting, do we have the mental health professionals there ready? Have we discussed in advance with the mental health professionals, is this a triggering subject? Or do we think, you know, well, I'm me, I run this place. That's how I feel. And I, I'm not saying flippantly that anybody thought that, the awareness of the potential for re-traumatization about, in this case, I believe it was really very much about vaccination and what do we have the right to tell you for Sakanot Nifashot to save lives, you ought to do. But again, remember the trauma of the women's bodies, right? Telling me what to do with my body, that's highly traumatizing. And I don't know, forgive me, Rabbi Guzik, I don't know that the trauma informed lens was used in that instance, and I think it's a great lesson that we talked about. We were just talking about how to have a trauma-informed approach to community convenings, and that we could really be mindful of what we as an institution can do to help people heal from trauma and build resilience, which is to create the connection, not the divisiveness or the even the environmental risk of divisiveness. So. In closing, I want to leave with you 
a Jewish concept. We didn't get to go through all the midot, but we'd heard about the Tzelem Elohim. For me, as a social justice activist, as a healthcare professional, and really as a human being and a Jew, reson always resonated with me that Kol Yisrael Arevim Zelazen, depending on which version of the, of the Talmud you read, it either says Zelazen or Zebaze. Now, Arevim means you're a guarantor, like a person has a loan. You have to be the security or the guarantor on the loan. So you would just think, okay, they're suffering, I have to suffer, right? They can't pay the loan, I got to deal with that debt. That's the notion of Zelaza. But I love this interpretation of the Ridva, who says, not only are we all guarantors for one another, where we need to be there when someone else is struggling, but we need to think we are all a single body. And that's the term used, goof, a body, not community. We are all so highly interconnected in our relationships and in our interactions, in our thoughts, in our behaviors, ways we don't even realize, sometimes hopefully we do, that we need to consider those effects. And this is what the science is showing us, that social connection and a community that creates social connection is healing both biological, psychological, and behavioral problems all at once in an interconnected way. So we're healing the nature and the nurture at the same time when we create real, meaningful, and non-traumatizing, safe connections between people, especially different people. We have to create that safe space for people who have a different opinion, a different perspective or political view. It has to be safe to have that discussion, and that's one of the breakdowns in society where people don't feel safe for having a different view. And we'll end with that idea that we are all arevim as Jews. Our value is we are interconnected. We are responsible because we are one. Zebaza, we are intersectional or intermingled with each other. And that's one translation. And that's what a religious community can do. Sadly, a lot less people in the United States are members of a religious institution, as you see. But faith-based organizations are wonderful places to create regular and meaningful social contact, connection, support, meaning, purpose, and reduce, they can reduce, risk-taking and traumatizing behavior. I'd love to see studies that show they reduce child abuse. Wouldn't that be awesome? We can do that when we take our spiritual leadership and guidance and our emotional and behavioral leadership and guidance and some of us rabble-rousers and we come together to create meaningful connected opportunities, which I know are going to continue. This is just the beginning. The goal is to continue the dialogue and the connection. And yes, we can reinvigorate ourselves. But really interesting, when you think about cycles, there are virtuous cycles. So people who are more likely, sorry, people who have a greater connection to their community and their community members are more likely to engage in service of that community. But also people who are more likely to engage in service of that community are more likely to feel connected to that community. So it's not just cycles of trauma. There are cycles of love and hope and giving. If we remain open-minded and we focus on how to create structured and practice our social connection as a community, that is what I believe we can do to really heal the progressing risks of intergenerational trauma. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. <laughs>